0: Would you take this moment and pray with me? Father, we thank you for the word that you give to us. We thank you that you have inspired every one of these words. And we ask, Lord, for your spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds so that we might understand, that we might be good hearers, that we might... uh, find application, and Lord, that we might see Christ. So we pray that you would help us in this time. We bring it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, as Josh just read, we have come to the end of the book of Amos. For some of us, this might be the first poetic, prophetic book that you've ever spent this much time in, in church. And as we come to an end, there is an obvious question that kind of runs throughout the nine chapters of Amos. How do we make sense of all of this judgment? It's a heavy and intense book. There have not been a lot of happy moments in Amos. There's a couple observations that I want to make that just kind of for the nine chapters as a whole. Because first we see God is holy. And God will reserve the right to judge his own household. God is not like the TV dad that kind of sits back while all the events around him are unfolding and he's kind of overwhelmed. God is holy. God will judge his own household. And we see that throughout Amos. But what we also see in Amos chapter 9 today, God is gracious. And God is radically expanding his household on a scope that goes far beyond what we can even conceive. For all the heaviness of Amos, we will see an explosion of grace at the end of the ninth chapter. Let's look back for a second and see the structure of the book from kind of a high level. In chapters one and two, we see God pronouncing judgment on the neighbors of Israel. He denounces all of the surrounding neighbors of the nation of Israel and pronounces judgment on them. But all the while, he's drawing a geographic bullseye on Israel itself. And in chapters 3 through 6, we start to see that the heaviest judgment is reserved for Israel itself. Because with great privilege as God's chosen people, Israel also has great responsibility. They have been neglecting their covenant responsibilities as God's people. So in chapters 3 through 6, we see descriptions of Israel's overwhelming guilt before God. They have mistreated the poor. They've taken advantage of their neighbor. Their worship has been idolatrous. Again and again, we see these themes. Then in chapters 7 through 8, we see a sequence of warning visions that depict the coming judgment on the nation. We see visions of locusts, of fire, of a plumb line, all of which demonstrate the impending doom that's coming to Israel. Last week, Pastor Micah talked about the vision of overripe fruit, which carried this message that it was now too late for Israel. Without uh, without really understanding the structure, we might think that these messages are just repetitive, just judgment. But these were intensifying warnings that were meant to be restorative. There's a progression in these warnings. They were meant to be an invitation to turn. And yet, sadly, at no point does the nation repent. And now in chapter nine, we've made it to the end. We see here the finality of judgment. There have been so many warnings, messages of judgment, so many proclamations of future doom, and finally it happens. And then in the final five verses of Amos, we see the beauty of restoration. And it's restoration beyond anything the Israelites could have conceived of. So let's look at these two sections, destruction in verses 1 through 10 and restoration in verses 11 through 15. At the beginning of chapter 9, Amos has another vision, but it's not really so future-oriented. It doesn't take a lot of interpretation because now the doom is just here, it's come. Verse one, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. And here's the big idea. Escape will be impossible. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them will escape. If you recall, one of the sins of the nation is that they had created their own center of worship away from Jerusalem. The King Jeroboam had created a new center of worship in Bethel. He had erected a golden calf to worship. He had appointed men to be priests who were not Levites. All of this was in defiance to God's command. And now in Amos' vision... At this illegitimate place of worship, both the capitals and the thresholds are shaking. In other words, the tops and the bottoms of the pillars, they're both shaking. Remember, this is a time when Israel felt secure and prosperous. They believed they had a strong military. Amos goes on to repeat, no one will escape this judgment. Verse 2, if they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Sheol represents the underworld. And these polar opposites of heaven and Sheol are meant to convey there will be no escape, no hiding from God's judgment. It doesn't matter how high or low the people try to go. They will not be able to escape God's holy judgment. And that theme of pairs of opposites continues in verse 3. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, then there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Again, the idea is if you go to the highest place, the highest mountain, or go to the lowest place, the depths of the sea, you will not be able to escape God's judgment. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere. He knows all things. He's always present. Nothing is hidden from him. You might notice in verses 2 and 3, there's kind of these echoes in the language from Psalm 139. Which says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shield, you are there. And often, if we read Psalm 139, we read those words and we find comfort. Psalm 139 is often quoted in beautifully in connection with God's personal, close involvement in our lives. The scripture tells us God's eye is always on us. There's really nothing we can do to change that. And that's either very comforting or it's absolutely terrifying. And in this case, God's eye is on the Israelites And they cannot escape. Verse 4. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. There's not a geographic location in the universe where we can escape from God. And verses 1 through 4 are describing this impossibility of escape. And then verses 5 to 6, they kind of transition a little bit to describe God's power over all of creation. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwells in it mourn. And all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. Who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. So Amos makes a transition in verses 5 through 6 from describing judgment to now describing who God is. And it's thought, this isn't the first time that Amos does this. It's thought that these are words or lyrics from a hymn that the Israelites would have been familiar with. Perhaps even sort of sung without really thinking about what they were singing. They, the Israelites might have sung this hymn, and you can hear the references to the Nile and to Egypt, and they might have been remembering the Exodus and their deliverance from Egypt. But they weren't thinking, God sees them in their wickedness. This God, the Lord God of hosts, the God of angel armies, who possesses all power over all creation, sees his people. He sees what they've been doing. And his eye is fixed on them for evil and not for good. Amos is saying there will be no escape, not high or low, not heaven or hell. No political escape, no military escape. If, you get, if they get rescued by other nations, there won't be deliverance. Verses 7 through 10. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? and the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Syrians from Ker. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, Disaster! shall not overtake us or meet us. The, the Israelites had been relying on their heritage, their special status as God's chosen people. There's a reference here to the Cushites. They were far away, like, a, like what we would consider like modern-day Ethiopia, a far-away African tribe. The Philistines and the Syrians were the enemies of Israel, the Israelites would have thought that those people were in a totally other category. But Amos is using these countries to point out the foolishness of relying on their special status instead of obeying God. The Israelites have heard so many warnings, but they haven't responded. It wasn't for lack of opportunity. And they say at the end here in verse 10, disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. Won't happen to us. Isn't that how we think too? We, just, we all have this bias towards ourselves that make us think, oh, that won't happen to me. When I first heard about the snowstorm, the first thing I thought was, oh, it probably won't be that bad. Right? That's generally, that's generally how we think. It won't be that bad. It won't happen to me. The reason for the confidence of the Israelites is their status, their heritage as God's chosen people. They are thinking that this gives them a guarantee of protection or blessing. They're not linking together God's blessing with a righteous life. They think they have a right to live on their own terms. And maybe, maybe you know people in high places and you can identify with this a little bit. Like, have you ever, have you ever like, got pulled over, but you'll think, oh, well, I'll, I'll mention my buddy because he's like the town chief. Or you have to pay a fine, but you think, oh, well, my family knows the judge. Well, okay, but there's a limit to that, of course. The Israelites thought they were invulnerable. They thought that their past connection to the Exodus, to God's saving acts, would protect them. But we see in Amos, God is judging his household. And let's be clear. The people of Israel, at this time... These people, at this time in Israel's history, experienced the perfectly wrath judgment of God. This was a time where Israel thought they were thriving politically, economically. They thought that they were secure. But a new king was coming to the throne in nearby Assyria. And it would be only a short time later, 722 BC, when the nation's taken into exile. The whole northern kingdom of Israel removed verse 10 could be the end it could this could just be a historic book with poetic warnings about judgment that happened a nation destroyed after ignoring so many warnings it could be like a just tale of reminder and yet there's restoration I counted, there are 146 verses in Amos. The whole book of Amos. About five of them are hopeful. But it's these last five. It's this last 3% of the book. And we come to the 3% now. And it outweighs all the judgment. Here's the restoration in verses 11 through 12. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. And repair its breaches. And raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. One of the most beautiful passages in the entire New Testament, or am sorry, Old Testament. We've gone through eight and a half chapters of Amos with hardly a glimmer of hope. And now Amos ends with this prophetic look into the future. God says, I will raise up the booth of David. That phrase booth of David refers to the covenant that God made with King David. So let's look at that for a second. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord speaks to King David through the mouth of Nathan the prophet. It's 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, if you want to turn there. 2 Samuel 7, Nathan says to David... Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David's house at this moment in Amos is referred to as a booth. It's so small in size compared to the glory of David's kingdom and to the even greater glory of Solomon's kingdom who succeeded David. The former glory of King David is in tatters. And yet God had promised In the line of David, a throne who would be a king whose throne would be established forever. Amos says that God will restore that fallen tent of David and raise it up again. And he will do it in such a way that all nations who are called by his name will worship him. When the Gospel of Matthew is written hundreds of years later, Matthew goes to great pains in chapter one to say that Jesus comes from the line of David, meaning that he is the heir to all of these great Davidic promises. God will rebuild the throne of David. He will do it by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that's, that's amazing in itself. But to understand it even more fully, we need to go forward from Amos, about 800 years forward to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. It's very powerful to see how these New Testament writers understood these Old Old Testament promises. Amos is only quoted two times in in the New Testament. The second time is from Acts 15. When we come to Acts, remember Jesus is risen from the dead. He has commissioned his followers to go and to make disciples of all nations. He's promised them that they will receive power from the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And in the early chapters of Acts, we see this very rapid missionary expansion as the gospel is going out from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then right in the midpoint, Acts chapter 15, we come to Acts 15 and we have this very, very pivotal moment called the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council is organized because of a debate that is going on in the early church. There was a debate going on about the necessity of keeping the law of Moses as a requirement for salvation. The idea here is that ceremonial law keeping, according to the Mosaic law, was required for salvation. And this debate kind of centralizes in Jerusalem. This is around 48 AD. It's an absolutely foundational moment for the early church. Paul, Peter, James, all the heavy hitters, all in one place, all assembled in Jerusalem. In our, in our American history, you know, we read about the, the Continental Congress, these guys, the Founding Fathers, debating for months before the writing of the Declaration of the Independence. Well, this is Philadelphia, 1776. It's a foundational moment for the early church that is going to be a pivot point For all of history. They are literally talking about what is the nature of salvation. And I don't know if you've ever been to a big, important meeting before where you know in advance these people are just not going to agree. There's just not going to be agreement. Have you ever been in a meeting like that? That's what's going on here. We have the apostles and leaders of the early church assembled. But Acts 15 tells us some believers... Who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, "It is necessary." This is referring to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. It is necessary to circumcise them in order, and order to order them to keep the law of Moses. So we have Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who are coming to believe and follow Jesus. They've heard about his death. They've heard about his resurrection. They've heard about what he's taught. They're in. And then we have this is fascinating believing Pharisees. These are not intentionally false teachers. They were not the religious leaders who would have wanted to see Jesus killed. They are sincere as well about following Jesus. But they're misguided. And they say, okay, but these Gentiles are going to need to get circumcised and follow the whole Mosaic law. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together like early church leaders gathered together to consider this matter. Acts 15 tells us there was much debate. There's no lack of words, no shortage of opinions. And then Peter gets up and he starts to explain that God who knows the heart has given the Holy spirit to the Gentiles. He's made no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And Peter says, how are we going to put the same yoke on them? That we haven't been able to bear. And after all that talking. Verse 12. Acts 15 verse 12 says. All the assembly fell silent. And after that. Barnabas and Paul get up. And they start to tell stories about the miracles. That God is doing among the Gentiles. And when they finish speaking. Then James gets up. And there have to be people in the room. That are thinking. Hearing these stories and thinking. This is amazing. But how can this be? How can non-observant Gentiles belong to our faith? After they finished speaking, this is Acts 15, 13. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And where does James go? He takes them to Amos. And James says in Acts 15, remember what the prophet said? After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. That all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What James is saying, that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. And now that he's been raised, a new era is beginning where all the nations of the earth will be included in God's blessing of salvation. This has always been in the heart of God, going back to his promise to Abraham. So when we read Amos, we see God is judging his household. Yes, we also see God is growing his household. And it's on a scale far beyond what anyone could have dreamed. It will be a house for all nations. A house for all nations. Amos 9, 13 through 15 continues and says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. The image here is of fertility so abundant that before the harvest is even fully reaped, the plowman has started for the next the plowing has started for the next harvest. Imagine coming to work in the morning and they're still just counting the money from the day before. That's what's going on here. It's a picture of overflowing fertility and abundance. It's a picture of the glorious life in the kingdom of God when God's people. All, all of his people, all nations are restored. The restoration, I hope you see, it's universal in scope. When sin entered the world, the ground was cursed and work became toilsome. But now we see here this picture of life under the Messiah where the ground is no longer cursed. It's abundance, it's fertility, it's security, it's total restoration. Really, this is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. They will never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. God's purpose in judgment is always restoration. So there's a warning for us here in Amos. If we, as God's people, become casual or lax in our worship, If we think it's no longer our responsibility to live in love for neighbor, if we become complacent and simply go through the religious motions, then there's a very serious warning in Amos for us to repent. But in addition to our warning, there is incredible hope to come and there is powerful energy for our mission because through Christ, God is redeeming for himself a people for all the nations and we as his people get to be part of that. We get to anticipate the day to come and we get to be part of God's plan in drawing, calling people to repent and to believe and come into the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the glorious hope that we see here in the scripture. Father, we thank you for sending Christ, the promised one. We thank you that the curse of sin is broken and we can anticipate that day of total restoration. And Lord, I pray that as your people, we would clearly and boldly and confidently hold out the hope of salvation in Christ so that many would hear and believe and come into your kingdom. Lord, we pray for that. We pray for your spirit's work in blessing our work. Lord, we trust in you. We thank you for the word that you've given us. And we pray that we would rightly respond to you in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna invite you now to stand and we will respond to God in song.